All right, so a couple of weeks ago, uh, Rob was teaching out of Luke, and then we stopped for a moment and started, and we did a teaching on baptisms, which was a really awesome message, by the way. I really, really enjoyed that teaching last week. <clears throat> but now we're going to be going back into the study of Luke. And it's been a little while since we were in it, and so I know that uh, a lot of things have happened since then that could have made you forget like football season started, for instance, you know, that's the most important one. And we did baptisms. We have fall weather peeking her beautiful head around the corner. And so it's easy to get distracted and forget what we were talking about. So we're going to just recap where we left off from the last time. Um, we're in Luke chapter 11, and we're going to be going verses 29 through 36 today. But before, I'm going to scoot this back. I have a feeling I'm going to trip over this thing, my plug in here, and that could be very entertaining. Uh, so um, anyway, Rob was teaching uh, last week and uh, earlier in this in this book, and I just want to do a recap on what happened. So whenever Rob was talking last week and teaching, or two weeks ago, uh, the verses that we were in, Jesus had just cast a demon out of a person, okay? Uh which was a miracle in itself, and for some reason, whenever the Pharisees and the religious leaders saw this, they did what any logical person who loves God would do. They accused him of using Satan to cast out that demon. So that's obviously not what happened at all. And then right after that, right after Jesus cast out the demon, and then they accused him of using the power of Satan to cast out this demon... Then they ask him for a sign. They're like, you know, show us a sign from heaven that that you were sent by God. And <laughs> if I was Jesus, I'd be like, did you not just see me cast a whole demon out of this guy right now? Like, what more do you want from me, right? So uh, it, at that point, it doesn't matter what Jesus would have done. I mean, there was there was no sign that he could give to them that would be that would make them happy or satisfied about what uh, about the fact that he was sent by God. So um, that leads us into this week's verses. We're going to start out in verse 29. As the crowd pressed in on Jesus, he said, this evil generation keeps asking me to show them a miraculous sign, but the only sign I'll give them is the sign of Jonah. What happened to him was a sign to the people of Nineveh, a sign to the people of Nineveh that God had sent him. What happens to the son of man will be a sign to these people that he was sent by God. The queen of Sheba will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now someone far greater than Solomon is here, but you refuse to listen. The people of Nineveh will also stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. So we see in these verses... We see in these verses that, uh, you know, they asked Jesus for a sign and he was, you know, he had no intentions of just like doing magic tricks for them to make them believe who he was. He was done with that. And so he says that I'm going to give you a sign and the sign is going to be the sign of Jonah. And and honestly, uh, at that point, like it wouldn't even matter what he had done. The minds of the religious leaders had already been made up, and Jesus was threatening their power, and that's all that they really cared about. So instead of giving them a sign, he recaps two stories from the Hebrew Bible. We'll start off with this story of the Queen of the South. 
Um, and most scholars believe this to be the Queen of Sheba, that she came up from Egypt to visit Solomon to, gain, to learn wisdom from him. So uh, she lived about 3,000 years ago, and this was a few hundred years before the fall of Egypt, and it was also a few hundred years before Israel had split into two kingdoms. And so for Jesus to be using the story of the Queen of Sheba to the Pharisees at this point, would have been pretty radical. For him to tell them that she would stand in judgment against them would have been one of the most radical statements that he could that he could say to them at the time. I mean, just for starters, she's a Gentile. She's not a Jewish person. Jewish people assume that they would be the ones that are going to be judging the world through, you know, through being the nation of Israel. And so God brings along Jesus, Jesus and says that the Queen of Sheba is going to be standing in judgment against them. And these are like the Pharisees, right? These are the religious leaders of the time. These are the, the ones in the know, the ones that are respected by all the people around to know what God's will is and all this. And Jesus is saying that the Queen of Sheba is going to stand in judgment against them. I mean, that was, that was the most, in their eyes, that was blasphemous and heretical for him to be saying something against that, uh, that she would be judging them. And they were supposed to be like the most righteous men of God. So, and he's calling them out in the most powerful way. I mean, this is like a knife to the heart to the Pharisees. So in just one statement, Jesus strips them away uh, all their pride. He takes away their self-righteousness and believing that they're God's chosen people simply by their race or their bloodline. And he rips away all their piousness by their, you know, their self-attained righteousness and their self-attained holiness. He dissolves their status by saying that a Gentile will be judging them. And I can't stress how radical of a statement this was. I'm telling you, if there were like pearls to be clutched that day, they would have permanent holes in their hands. So let's stop and think about who this woman really was and uh, why Jesus chose her as an example to illustrate how she would consider... how. Uh, how she would be considered righteous enough to judge the generation of Israel. So, like I said before, she was kind of like deemed a deity in in Egypt. The pharaohs were considered uh, godlike, or I mean, they were worshipped, right? And um, the people—I don't like know how she would have felt about that, but I knew the, the culture of Egypt would have felt that way. Um, I know that if somebody compliments me on my shirt, then I you'd be hard pressed to tell me that I'm not the hottest thing walking that day. And, you know, she's got an entire land basically worshiping her and everything. So she had, a, you know, every right to be filled to the brim with pride, right? Um, not only that, but I mean, like this lady had money and I'm not talking about like paying your bills on time money or like, I think I'm going to go and buy a yacht today money. She had money like I want to build a spaceship and go into <laughs> go into space money. Like, I want to build a rocket. She has everything. Not only does she have money, she also has power. She's got armies at her disposal. She's got an entire nation that uh, that she rules, and some would consider the nation of Egypt at that time to be one of the most powerful nations on the planet. Like, she, for anybody to have pride, it would have been her. But she decides, instead of being prideful in who she is and what she has, she decides that she wants to go and see Solomon. And this is a story out of the Bible that the Queen of Sheba goes and visits Solomon in Israel. So whenever she goes, I mean, it's not like she hops on a plane and flies 45 minutes over to his house, right? 
Like the, she has an entourage. This is a trip, a journey, a trek that she would have to take. And so whenever she goes over to Israel, she goes humbly. She doesn't just go over there with her armies and think that she's going to get something from Solomon. She doesn't go with nothing either. She brought uh, 120 talents of, uh, of gold. That's like close to $120 million. She brought the biggest shipment of spice that Israel had ever been gifted. Not only that, she brought like pearls and jewels and diamonds and things like that. She had an army with her to protect her, obviously. This was an endeavor. You know, this was a weeks-long event. And she specifically went, according to the Bible, she specifically went over there to learn of the wisdom of Solomon. His wisdom had started to become renowned, you know, worldwide. And she wanted to go and understand how it was that he had the wisdom that, that he did. So, I mean... She had a great deal of humility whenever she decides to go over to Israel to speak to Solomon, right? I mean, she has everything. What does she need the wisdom of Solomon for? But she, having the opportunity to be as prideful as she could be, as prideful as any person on the world could be, she chose to have humility to go to learn about the God of Israel through Solomon. And the the important thing here is, in essence, she threw her crown down before God, right? So the thing is about our crowns, we tend to have our own crowns, right? Like we tend to have the crowns that we choose to hold on to as much as anybody else. So uh, I know that for me, some of the empires that I've made or some of the territories that I have, some of the things that I hold on to so tightly, I can hold on to that crown. I can clutch it as tightly as the Pharisees did their pearls that day because it's just what we do. Um, I mean, how often is it that we don't pray and ask God to move whatever mountain it is in our lives? Like Often we think that we're clever enough to find a way out or we're resourceful enough to figure out a way out of our problems instead of asking God to move us with wisdom to get through it or just trusting him together all together, you know, in general. Um, and then, you know, whenever we do have those things that we really like that, you know, maybe God wants us to, to leave and go and seek him after, you know, you're like, this is my territory. I'm not going to let you take any of it. And I mean, it could be anything like, you know, we can, everybody's going to have something in their lives that we're holding on to instead of giving it over to God. I know I have several. I mean, it could be anything from like food to smoking, pornography, drinking. It could be racing cars. It could even be like hunting or, I mean, we can make it even out of going to church sometimes. We can watching football, gaining the promotion at the office, right? We all have something that we're trying to get for our own selves instead of throwing our crowns down and asking God to build his kingdom in us and relinquishing our own kingdoms. And so that's why I think that we should be like the Queen of Sheba, right, in this story. Whenever we do this, whenever we humble ourselves the way that she did, whenever we throw down our crowns before the one true king, God gives us a freedom that can never be stolen after that, right? And so I want to switch the focus from the Queen of Sheba now to, uh, to Jonah, uh, and we're going to have to kind of like read the verses again because whenever Jesus said it, he did this sandwich thing, and I've I got to separate it out and everything like that. But no, in these verses, uh, so 
it says that the, the crowd pressed in on Jesus and he said, this evil generation keeps asking me to show the miraculous sign. The only sign I will give them is the sign of Jonah. What happened to him was a sign to the people of Nineveh that God had sent him. And what happens to the Son of Man will be a sign to these people that he was sent by God. We talked about Sheba already. And then the people of Nineveh also will stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. So, um, obviously... God, Jesus is trying to give them another analogy of what it means to to, uh, be humble before him. So, uh, like I said, Jesus tells them that no sign is going to be given except for the sign of Jonah. And we need to understand that whenever uh, Jesus mentions Jonah, the religious leaders of the time would have had the whole story in mind. It wouldn't have just been Jonah being in the fish for a few days. And then being spit out onto the shore of Nineveh. They would have had the entire uh, story in their minds. They've studied this over and over. In fact, the Jewish people have a holiday called Yom Kippur. In fact, it was just celebrated earlier this week. And that entire holiday is an honor to the book of Jonah. They keep that firmly in mind. They think about the fact that uh, Jonah ended up needing to repent and the people of Nineveh repented. And it's a, it's a day of atonement, a day of repentance, and a day of looking at God's mercy. So the religious Pharisees, the people that Jesus is speaking this to, would have been keenly familiar with what he was saying to them. He was telling them that they were sinning against God, not only in their lives in general, but the hardness of their own hearts, but also in the way that they were treating Jesus in that very moment. And to give a little insight into that, we're going to re-examine the book of Jonah uh, just a little bit. We're not going to go through the whole book. I'm going to have you guys out of here by 4 p.m., okay? Uh, but I do want to give a quick overview because it is important. God wanted Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh. He, he tells Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and tell them that in 40 days, the city is going to be overthrown. So Jonah did what any good prophet would do. He went straight there and no, he didn't. He didn't do that at all. He got on a ship and sailed in the opposite direction toward the city of Tarshish. Uh, so he's on a ship with all these sailors. A huge storm comes up. And obviously it was one that was pretty amazing for even the sailors because they were like, hey, this is a bad storm. But they've been out to sea lots of times, right? They knew what a bad storm looked like. This was something different. And so they find Jonah and they cast some lots to find out the reason why God was sending this storm. The lots fall on Jonah, and he's sitting there looking nervous. And, <laughs> and they say to him, well, Jonah, you know, you're the reason why the storm is here. Why don't you tell us what we should do with you? And so Jonah says, why don't you just throw me overboard? Throw me into the sea. So they do. You know, I mean, Jonah decides to spare them for his own, you know, not following God. And he gets thrown into the sea. And as he's drowning, a big fish comes up, you know, a well or a big fish is said in the Bible. It comes up and swallows him up and then transports him from where he was being at Tarshish to over to Nineveh and vomits him up on shore. And then Jonah goes up to the shore covered in well vomit and stinking of sea salt uh, and preaches to them. And they're like, well, this is a sign from God. And but they did. They listened. They, were, they, they listened to Jonah and they repented, okay? Even the king of Nineveh said, okay, we're going to all have a fast. We're all going to have sackcloth on. Like, we are going to repent of our sins. And they did. And Jonah never wanted that to happen. Uh, 
Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place to preach to them, to tell them to repent and that God was, that their city was going to be overthrown in 40 days. And the reason why is that, is that Nineveh was in the country of Assyria. And I don't know if you're familiar, how familiar you are with the Old Testament, but Assyria attacked Israel a bunch of times. Like, Assyria was enemies of Israel. And so Nineveh just couldn't forgive them. He didn't want them to have an opportunity to repent because he didn't want to forgive them. But the great thing about this story is that God didn't care what Jonah's actions were or how much of a heart he had for this thing. God was going to do what God was going to do. And so he sent Jonah kicking and screaming basically to Nineveh so that he would go and and, uh, preach to these people. So he does that. Um, Jonah's upset about it at the end. And you can even read in in the book of Jonah like, there's never a point whenever he's like, oh, God, I did the wrong thing. Thank you so much for showing me this thing. No, at the end of it, he's still pretty upset about it, and he basically just builds a shelter so that he could look at the city, and hopefully it'll fall apart, right? But God, at the end of the book of Jonah, says, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? God cares about your dogs, too, guys. So, uh, but God's saying to Jonah that he created all the people there and only he will decide whether they receive mercy or not. It's not going to be upon Jonah. And that's actually the beautiful thing I was wanting to talk to you about in this story. We see the Pharisees. So what I'm saying is that the Pharisees would have known exactly what Jesus was trying to say to them. Jesus was comparing them to Jonah and saying that Nineveh, a Gentile city, would be judging them on the judgment day, right? And Jesus does this in one sentence. He talks about Sheba, and then he talks about Nineveh judging them, and he does it in one sentence, and he's placing the Gentiles like lower than the... I mean, he's placing the Israelites lower than the Gentiles, which is not a place that they deem themselves to be, right? They consider themselves much higher than that. And so Jesus does it twice in one sentence, right then, and tells them that Gentiles are going to be judging them. The Pharisees are going to be upset about this, and they, Jesus is telling them, you're the one in need of repentance. And so there's like a hundred lessons that we could draw from this story, from the book of Jonah, from what Jesus was saying here. But I want to just focus on one of them. So it's fairly obvious that Jesus is pointing out the sins of the Pharisees and comparing them to a hard-hearted and rebellious prophet. So if we were going to list the prophets like in order, we would have John the Baptist like kind of right up here, right? And Jonah would be like, way down on this level here and the pharisees think of themselves as pretty righteous but uh but god is saying no you're not like all of your hard-heartedness and you, you know i'm trying to do a thing i'm bringing you the son of the, my son right here i'm bringing you the christ i'm bringing you the messiah he's right here in front of your face but your hard heart is keeping you from seeing this thing, seeing who it is and so then Jesus compares him to Jonah. He's like, I'm done with the signs. Here you go. You have all the signs in the world. You have the entire Old Testament to read. You have me performing these miracles, casting out demons and healing the sick. And yet you still choose to be- choose not to believe because it's going to take your power away. It's going to take away your empire that you've created for yourself. So um, the thing is, whenever we look at this story, whenever I look at this story, I sit here and think to myself, who do I identify with this in this in this story with, right? Do I identify with Nineveh? Well, the thing is, I don't really identify with Nineveh too much anymore because, like, there was a time. There was a time whenever I was destructive in my life that I didn't care about the consequences that other people were going to have to 
endure because of my actions. There was a time I didn't give any thought to God or how much damage I was doing. But I repented, right? I started walking with the Lord. I wore my sackcloth. I put ashes on. And now I walk in the glorious mercy of the Lord, right? So I can't really identify with Nineveh in this story too much. Uh, I don't completely identify with the Pharisees, right? Like, I definitely don't want to. I do still hold that posture from time to time and think that I'm like a way better Christian than the other church down the road. Uh, but God's working that out in me. He's taking, he's trying to, you know, take that away from me. But I do identify with Jonah a whole lot. I identify with Jonah because he, he had a hard, he didn't forgive. He didn't want to forgive, right? He didn't want to forgive somebody that God told him to forgive. He didn't want to give mercy to somebody that didn't, you know, seem like that they deserved to have mercy. He didn't want to give grace or extend grace to somebody that didn't deserve grace, right? So I do that. I have a problem where I don't want to forgive somebody who I don't feel like deserves forgiveness, there's times whenever I don't want to give grace to somebody that hasn't done anything really to warrant grace. And there's times that I don't want to give mercy to somebody who I don't feel like deserves grace. I mean, mercy. The main person that I do this to is me. Like, I don't forgive myself very well. I don't, I don't show God's love to myself very well. Or I didn't. But I would like to tell you all a story. Um, quick story. A couple of months ago, I took some time off. Uh, I had, I had to just take some time off from everything from work, family. I mean, the only people that I was really focused on was my wife and my kids, right? I had to stop doing all the other things that were in my life because I started having like a hard heart toward the Lord. I started forgetting how much compassion he had on me. Uh, and it was really affecting like the way that I was living my own life. So I took some time off and I, I was very intentional. I was like, I'm going to pray. I'm going to read. I'm going to try and like do these daily devotionals. I'm going to take some time to meditate. I'm going to just really focus on seeking the face of the Lord, right? And uh, all the time had passed for, for my time off, for my sabbatical. And toward the end of it, like God hadn't really spoken to me. I did get a lot of priorities set right. You know, I was focusing on my family more and, and focusing on how I was going to do work and that kind of thing a lot more. But it was getting toward the end of it, and God still hadn't spoken to me. I was getting a little nervous. And so, <laughs> but the cool thing is, uh, toward the end of it, um, God asked me a, a pretty simple question. And he said, Blake, do you give grace and forgiveness to others whenever you see them? I'm like, yes, Lord, you know I do. You ask me to do that. I try and give as much grace and forgiveness as I can. Never know what people have been through in their lives. And whenever they, they say and do things, like, they just, they need forgiveness and grace. Like, it's, it's the way that you designed us to be, to, to give forgiveness and grace, right? And then he says, why don't you extend that same grace and mercy to yourself then? And I was floored, man, like, I was convicted and comforted at all at the same time, you know, like whenever God does that kind of thing. But it was amazing to me because I was so quick to, we all are. I mean, I, I, I know you guys, you always give grace and forgiveness to me constantly. And so I see it. We all do this, but I think we neglect to give it to ourselves for some reason, you know. So for me personally, like I've always been really critical of myself uh, in my own life. So if I 
don't do something that I feel like that I should do, if I, mess, if I misspoke, if I said the wrong thing, if I wasn't nice enough to that person, like I'll go back home and then beat myself relentlessly for uh, not doing the thing I was supposed to do or doing the wrong thing, right? Uh, and God is like, man, you're, you're just like relentlessly beating yourself up. You're not giving any grace and forgiveness to yourself. And so after 20 years of walking with the Lord, I finally realized, like, I actually am forgiven. Like, God forgave me. And so I need to live in that forgiveness and stop putting myself up above God in the sense that I get to choose whether I get forgiveness or grace, right? Like, God said that we have that. And so I've got to stop putting myself above God. I've got to stop putting myself on a pedestal. And the thing is, what's really interesting about that whole thing is that you get into this cycle where you're like um, beating yourself up about this and, and criticizing yourself about that. Oh, man, you did this wrong. You're never going to get this Christian thing right. You're, you know, and we kind of start thinking of ourselves like Jonah in a sense, like I can do something that's going to stop God's will. Well, that's not going to happen. Like God's will is going to happen no matter what. God is moving through us and working in us. But you get in this cycle where you're like, man, I'm just not doing this good enough and just relentlessly beating yourself up. And then as a result of that, you start having less energy to go and help other people and to do things that they're supposed to be doing. And then you don't have the energy and the mentality to say the right thing. So you beat yourself up even more and it turns into this like endless vicious cycle of beating yourself up and then not doing enough. And But then at the end of it, man, like, at some point, you start to listen to those to that voice, and it starts to kind of sound like your own voice, and you think that it's you, but that voice is the voice of our enemy. If you're getting condemned, if you're getting you know, beat up like that, trust me whenever I tell you, that is not the voice of God. That's the voice of our enemy, and we can, we can recognize, like, Blake, you didn't say the right thing to Najil. You were mean to her and talked to her about football, and you know, said the Cardinals weren't that good. Instead of going, I don't mean that. They're a really good team. Uh, so, <laughs> but anyway, so I could go home and I'd be like, oh, man, I, I messed up. I should have never said it to Naja, right? But I need to remember, all of us need to remember, like God forgave us for that. For me to say something to Naja, like God already knew I was going to say that thing. It didn't come as a shock to him. He's not astounded by the fact, clutching his pearls. I'm like, gosh, I can't believe Blake said that to her. You know, he messed up my whole plan. But I promise you, you're not powerful enough to do that. You're not powerful enough to mess up God's plan. And you're not good enough to cause it to go better in some kind of way, right? We can't, we can't cause God to give us more favor, or, and we're certainly not powerful enough to mess up his plan. So, man, I got all, that was fun to talk about, but I completely lost where I was. <laughs> uh, so, Here's the thing. So what are you saying, Blake? That I can do whatever I want and God doesn't care. It doesn't matter if you do good or bad. God doesn't care about those things. That's not what I'm saying at all. I hope that you don't get that from what I'm saying. Um, it does matter. So Jonah decided to not help God out or not walk alongside God to go and forgive the people of Nineveh. And if you think about it, think about how much harm he did to himself and to the people around him by not following God's will, not going along with what God was wanting to do. I mean, he put the people on the ship at danger. He almost choked a well. You know, he, he got covered in sticky goo. He got spit up onto the shore. And you know how the sand feels on you and everything like that. 
Jonah didn't, didn't walk alongside God with what God was doing. So it does matter on how we live our lives. Like, we, it, 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 it does matter on, and I'm not saying that you get to skate accountability or skirt uh, responsibility, um, you know, nothing like that. Uh, I mean, we can't be like, you know, I just keep on cussing out my coworkers and telling them how worthless they are. You know, it's just who I am. That's not what I'm saying at all. Like God, God is working those things out in us. But what I am saying is that we can live in the freedom of forgiveness. That's what the point of that is. And, you know, I don't even know how we get that voice in our head that says like, you know, the, you're worthless and you're not doing this right and da da da. Like Rob's never taught that here, right? Like we've never got a lesson from Rob telling us that we need to be the perfect Christian or anything like that. And I don't know where we get the idea that that's even a prerequisite, but it's just something that we do. It's something that we, you know, I think that we take what we're supposed to be convicted by and then turn it into condemnation. We're experts at it. But the thing is, let's just live in the forgiveness that God has, that God's already given to us. All right, and so now I'm, oh my gosh, I went so long. Uh, so anyway, let's read these next verses. Um, yeah, we're not strong enough to stop God's will, guys, no matter what we do. Uh, so this is the last verse here. No, uh, no one lights a lamp and then hides it or puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where the light can be seen by all who enter the house. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But whenever it's unhealthy, your body is filled with darkness. Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. If you're filled with light no, with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant as though a floodlight were filling you with light. So we're going to talk a little bit about being humble and being the light, right? And this is kind of like a caveat into what we were just talking about. Um, if I were to take a basket and put it over a candle, the light from that candle is going to be greatly diminished, right? I mean, you have something that is supposed to be there to light up the room, and then we put that basket over it. We're not going to be able to see as well as we should. So I want to take a, uh, I want to give you an analogy real quick, and this is to like help us shed a little light on this so that we can see a little brighter. I think we can all agree here that the like in this analogy that Christ is the light, right? The Bible talks about Him being the light of the world. And um, and several other verses. So what could the basket be? Could it be sin? Yeah, sure, it could be sin, certainly. Uh, could it be just that life has been beating us up? Life has been getting to us. Uh, we had a problem at our job. Our spouse said something weird. Uh, our kids are having trouble with something. You know, it could be that. Those kind of things can get us down. Um, but it could also be that voice in our head beating us up for our shortcomings. So... Uh, like I said earlier, you know, that voice in your head can tell you that you're either worthless or tell you that you're the coolest thing walking today. And either way, that's basically ego, right? And so I want to present that the basket could be ego. Now, the magnificent thing about God in this parable, and it's true in our lives as Christians, is that even the basket over the light, if you put the basket over the light in the dark, the light's still going to shine out. Like, it's got holes in it. The light's still going to be visible. You're going to know where the light is. So what I'm saying about God is going to get his will done through us, he's our master. We're his servant. We're going to do what, he's, what he deems to do, right? 
and we can build up our kingdom. We could make our ego nice and tight. We could construct that basket as good as we can. It's still going to have the holes in it. The light's still going to be shine. You know, you're going to see the beams of light out of it. But what I would like to challenge all of us to do today is just knock the dang basket off the table. Like, let the light shine, guys. You know, like, let's be who God made us to be. Whenever God created us, he didn't make mistakes. He made us intentionally the way he did for a reason. Some of us enjoy math or art or playing music. Some of us are doctors and some of us just enjoy helping the homeless or have a heart for immigrants or want to give food to the to the to the needy, right? Some of us have a heart for um for orphans and for prisoners. Like all of us have a a different thing. If you're like me, you love bad puns in Star Wars. But that's the thing, like God made me who I am. He made all of you exactly who you are for a reason, even if it's just to enjoy life with people who think the way that you do in a sense, you know, that have the kind of the same goals. The beautiful thing about the church, all of us have one common goal in mind, and that's Jesus Christ. Whatever that personality looks like that God gave you, just let it, let it be that personality. We spend so much of our time, like, making ourselves palatable to the world right? We spend so much of our time whenever we're talking to people about like, I know I have about, you know, when do I tell them I'm a Christian? When do I tell them that, you know, they're having this problem in their life? And so, you know, I can get up in there and do this thing. We need to stop worrying about that. You're Christians. I know that the love of Jesus Christ is inside of you. I see the light in all of you. Whenever the time comes, God's going to make that light shine brighter. You don't have to try and manufacture it yourselves. You don't have to try and be somebody that, that we don't have to try and be anybody that we're not. We can literally just be as authentic as God made us to be and celebrate the fact that whenever he made us, he took a lot of care and a lot of compassion and a lot of love to create us the way that we are. I mean, if we're going to have the issues that we have in our, in our lives that we're trying to work out, that God is working out in our lives. And that's a good thing. You know, we are to become more sanctified. But we can also celebrate the fact that God is a good creator. And whenever we learn to love ourselves in a way, whenever we give that grace and forgiveness to ourselves, we're actually doing a very Christ-like thing. We're being very much Christ-like to ourselves. And the Bible says that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we have a much, much better chance of loving our neighbor if we love ourselves properly. God, I want to thank you so much for bringing us here today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for my family here. Thank you for the church around the world, God. It's amazing to me to watch you work the miracles that you do. You're a beautiful and wonderful God, and I ask you that you help us to see how much care and compassion you have for us, God. Help us to give up our crowns. Help us to step down off of our thrones. Help us to be humble enough to see who it is that you made us to be and help us to live that life in such a way that we're able to love others in the process. In Jesus' name.